0: You're listening to the Nonprofit Problem Solver Podcast, brought to you by kevkayak.com. Kev helps nonprofit leaders deliver more impact faster and easier, so they can be mission accomplished in 40 hours a week or less. For more information, visit kevkayak.com. Now, here is the host of nonprofit problem solver, Kev Kayak. Kev
1: Kied here. Welcome to Nonprofit Problem Solver. Thanks for tuning in. We're here to help. You are actually the Nonprofit Problem Solver. Our job is to bring you practical, tactical expertise that you can use right now, or maybe in an hour. You're about to hear the recording of a live call with an expert panel. And you're more than welcome to join these live calls. Just zip on over to nonprofitproblemsolver.com to register. Episode 8 is our second close look at board and strategy. We pick up from last episode's marketing and fundraising conversation with regard to board members being active in fundraising. How much should they be doing? And what should an exec director do if the board refuses to fundraise, especially during COVID? We get an update on contingency plans and we tackle the thorny subject coming on our radars now about potential merger and closure of programs and organizations. All that over the next hour. Okay, welcome everyone to uh, Nonprofit Problem Solver. This is episode number eight, and we are talking about board and strategy. So I'm going to introduce the panel. And after that, we will go through our series of questions. Please feel free to add your own questions in the chat. The uh, panel will participate as and when they are able. And uh, we will have possibly some time for Q&A at the end. So let's uh, begin our introductions with Julie Clark.
2: Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Julie Clark, Vice President of Nonprofit Engagement with Business Volunteers Unlimited. We're based in Northeast Ohio and serve to bridge the nonprofit and business sectors to strengthen our community. Happy to be here.
1: Thanks. Uh, Benita Stanley?
3: Hi, my name is Benita Stanley. I'm with Stanley Solutions Consulting. We're based in Atlanta, Georgia. We work specifically with uh, nonprofits of color, both um, domestically and abroad. Um, surrounding organizational development, infrastructure building, capacity, um, whatever they need to
1: make them stronger. Thanks, Pranita And uh, Leslie Spefman.
4: Hello, I'm Leslie Spefman. I am based in Omaha, Nebraska, um, and I have Spefman Consulting Services here in Omaha. And I focus primarily most of my work on strategic planning and board development. Um, So I have recently focused a lot on board development because there seems to be a lot of room for for growth and improvement in that space, so.
1: Okay, thank you. And we uh, may have a couple of uh, other board members joining us later. It looks like they're a bit behind. So we'll jump right into our first question. Benita, I wonder how you're finding uh, either locally in Atlanta or, or elsewhere, how foundations are pivoting with respect to the way they are handling their grants and their partners.
3: Sure, so the short answer is Foundations are being much more flexible. Uh, Specifically, they are really starting to sort of streamline and even eliminate some of their reporting requirements that a lot of their grantees um, would typically submit. So this is temporarily during COVID-19. They're also sort of shifting the awards, the monies that they've been granting to organizations to unrestricted funds. So they're saying that, you know, we trust you and we know that you can figure out the best way to use these funds, so please do so. And then the second way, the third way in which they're sort of pivoting under COVID-19 is they're starting to rethink their deliverables, right? Um, under this new virtual environment. So uh, many of my clients do a lot of sort of field work, get out to vote work, et cetera. And what the foundations are now telling them is that we know you have to work under a virtual environment now. And so you're not going to be able to meet those numbers. Um, And so let's figure out how we can meet some numbers. So they're being quite flexible.
1: And how long do you think that flexibility is likely to last? And that's the, and that's the, the, the golden question to a certain extent, but what's your, what indications are you seeing?
3: Certainly throughout the rest of the year. And for some folks, it may be the award year. So it may be t- through next June, but I don't, I don't think this kind of flexibility is gonna last forever. So I would say probably maybe six to 12 months at most.
1: And, and Julia, are you seeing that in the uh, foundations that you work with, the same, same sort of time scale?
2: Absolutely, kind of temporarily changing the game um, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. being much more flexible. Um, I know for one of our funders at, at BVU, you know, we reached out and said, "Hey, can we, you know, kind of extend this?" And absolutely. So you know, they're very um, you know, they understand where you know where the the sector is, and they want to help as much as they can. Um, we're also seeing, you know, with some organizations or some foundations, you know, they're a few are putting a pause on any other grant making and solely mm. focusing on COVID-19 response right now. And again, I think that's going to be a hopefully a short term um, because as we emerge out of this, those needs aren't, aren't going away for our nonprofits.
1: So Leslie uh, some flexibility with regard to maybe the outcomes or how the money is used, but, but also some restrictions in the way Julie's describing that the, the the some funding programs are actually being ceased or paused. Are you, are you seeing that b- both um, broadening flexibility, but also some restrictions in funding availability?
4: Yes, I mean I can say in in our in my own community that a lot of the major funders have directed their funding towards um, COVID relief causes, which is certainly important. But you know I echo what Julie feels that. I hope that that's not permanent or not, you know, because plenty of other nonprofits are really struggling right now too, including one that I serve on the board for, that we had to cancel our, our only event of the year. Um, and we were delighted that some of our sponsors, despite that we won't be able to execute on the event to give them their benefits for sponsoring us, um, have allowed us to keep the funding and move forward. So that's been great to see, not only with foundations, but with corporate sponsors as well.
1: And That's then one great. other thing uh, I. Okay, I, Benita, do you want to jump in where you were? Sorry about sure. that.
3: Sure. I was just going to say uh, many of the foundations have come up with these very sort of quick, no application, rapid response grants or funds that they've been um, rolling out very, very quickly. And many have been surrounding technology upgrades. And they're smaller, but they, they, they've they been getting them out there very quickly.
1: What What specifically, what sort of technology upgrades are they? trying to support in this well, time. Well most
3: grassroots nonprofits whose staff are all working remotely, they don't have um, laptops at home or cell phones. Some of them don't even have internet connections. And so, you know, getting those sort of structures in place for staff to work effectively remotely.
1: Okay, so addressing the some of the digital divide issues. That's great. Uh, let me just introduce Gregory Scott. He's um, uh, another panelist and just uh, Gregory, we've been talking on our first question about the flexibilities that foundations have been shown, their their grantees, and what's emerging is there's a focus on COVID-19 and some flexibilities with regard to that set of funding, but then some restrictions or narrowing of focus or even pausing with some, some other opportunities. So if you would just uh, remind uh, the listeners uh, a, 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 a bit of who you are, and then uh, if you want to add what your experiences with foundation flexibility
5: yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thank you for uh, this is round two. I believe that we that we're we're jumping on this um i th- I think our experience um has been a little bit different than some other nonprofits, and that's particularly because we um operate what they call essential services so while we um have probably about twenty different programs um we we have a, we run the Orange County Food Bank. Which is a major part of what we do, um, but we also have three community family resource centers um, that's providing um, a lot of different services around poverty. So when this when when this pandemic first happened, we were able to shift towards um, really focus on food, and so a lot of our funders, you know, because it was such an essential service, a lot of our funders shifted um, additional resources towards that as well, um, and and also the need rose um, because. Um, Once the unemployment, people started getting unemployed, once that began to happen, um, there was another group out there called the the newly vulnerable. These are people that were laid off from work, and they were newly vulnerable. And now those are the same people who are now knocking on our doors. So I think for us, foundations stepped up. A lot of major donors stepped up um, with additional funds to help us secure that. But we shifted a lot of our business model towards food insecurity during that time.
1: So are you finding that uh, so to sort of compensate for uh, funding being shifted to those essential services like food and, and other forms of COVID relief, that foundations are pausing funding for other programs or for programs that they had planned for later in 2020 and next year? We, ha- we haven't
5: experienced that yet, um, as of yet. Um, we don't expect it to keep continuing to go the way it's going right now. Um, um, cause a lot, lot of, a lot of our funding is, like I said, it's shifted towards purchasing of food. I mean, we serve 200,000 families every single month. And so a lot of our, um, entire, you know, energy is towards that. And our funders have called. Um, that was a great thing about, you know, not only did we reach out during this time, but a lot of our funders reached out to us. And, and so, um, but I don't expect that to kind of go on so we're preparing for six months we're preparing for for next year to really see what it's going to be like and really strategizing around what but so far they have not reduced their other funds towards us
1: that's interesting the, the the way you've described that relationship of funders reaching out to you because that's obviously some groundwork that you and and your colleagues have put in to maintain and steward those relationships which is not necessarily the case uh elsewhere leslie I want to come back to your comment about uh being a, a board member on a, on a on a and your organization in, in that specific case having to cancel its event and and so on and and i'm leading to this idea of a uh perhaps a sting in the tail when we're talking about some uh l- lesser funds being available uh Covid taking uh, a greater proportion share than perhaps anyone would would wish and and it's and and obviously then it's got to be compensated for somewhere and I'm wondering what your experiences with board members and fundraising are they keen to do it? are they reluctant to do it uh, we've certainly had in the the last uh, episode on marketing and fundraising an extended conversation about. Board members' reluctance to fundraise. Can you can you talk about the the experience you're having there, Leslie?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think um, I can talk to a client situation right now and the board that I serve on personally, um, both of which struggle with board members fundraising. <laughs> um, you know, I don't know. I think it's an individual thing. Some people are just more comfortable with it than others. I also think that a lot of nonprofits maybe don't do a great job at explaining the fundraising requirement before a board member signs on. So that's something that I typically advise is make sure you're really transparent with how much fundraising is going to be required so that no one can say, oh, well, I didn't know you were going to ask me to raise $10,000 a year. Um, So I think that that, that's the key. Um, I also think that staff needs to do a great job supporting board members in that space and making sure that they have the tools they need to be able to sell the organization, that they have the information and the familiarity with programming so that they're able to talk, you know, eloquently about the, the mission um, so that they can sell it. Because um, it's not something that everyone has the same level of comfort with. Um, I have a, a client right now who literally none of her board members are fundraising at all um, she's the only one doing the fundraising, so I've been coaching her through that and putting you know some expectations in place and really bringing that conversation to the table and having board members talk about um, you know what 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 their fundraising really means to the success of the organization. She actually had one of her board members say that he wasn't going to give to the organization, so that's the whole. That's the farthest end of the spectrum of terrible, um, but um, I think overall it's just really educating and, and making sure people understand that that's required of them as a board member.
1: Uh, Benita, can you talk about the the uh, boards you work with, which is a, I know there's a large number of organizations uh, over some time and how the expectations around fundraising and the skills and tools that uh, some of the other panelists have mentioned already have evolved over the years and and where we are now with the organizations you work with in, in this regard
3: so yeah i'm going to start off with three words fear and discomfort <laughs> so a lot of board members particularly new board members experience a lot of fear around asking for money and they're just simply uncomfortable and so that's where as leslie said you have to really let folks know when they're coming in through the appropriate onboarding process that the expectation is is that they have to assist in fund development So some of the challenges, some of the smaller nonprofits that I work for are, is that they really don't have the tools to effectively support board fund development. So there's no donor database. um, There's no call list or script. There's no development plan that has a role for board members in there. So those kinds of things need to be put in place. But really, what I try to tell new board members that I help bring on board is that donors expect to be asked. This is a value exchange. Mm-hmm. they value the work that your nonprofit is doing, and they want to invest in that work and so they expect to be asked otherwise they wouldn't take your call or have a meeting with you, and so they want to give, so they expect that you ask for that
1: okay that that makes it this the the list of tools uh, was it was interesting in terms of uh, just just some of the basics, like a development plan with an explicit role. Per board member, uh, Julie, you were you were nodding your head there. Um, as uh, Gregory, can you tell us about how you've maintained those relationships that you referenced when you joined us about uh, the donors reaching back out to you?
5: Well, you know, I, I think when I, when I think about fundraising, um, especially from a board perspective, um, fundraising is a culture, not just an activity or an event or hey, go do this. Um. Just Go Ask um, It's about building a culture and 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 having a culture of philanthropy um, is from the, the front door all the way up to the board chair. And and so fundraising is a team sport. It's about building a culture around philanthropy. And I think once you once you begin to build that culture, then you begin to um, uh, get people more comfortable with the idea of it. And so what I mean by that is there, there are different roles and different aspects of being able to fundraise and really thinking about it strategically. And so certainly building, and it's a relationship, it's a relationship business, um, not a sales job, it's a relationship business. And so there's different ways where board members, especially during this time, can be part of that process. Sometimes it's thank you. Um, so we, we, we can divide up our, our some of our donors um, um And, you know, Sally, you take 10. Joe, you got 10. You got these seven. Sometimes it's based on the relationship that they may have, or we try to find the connection that they may have. And sometimes it's doing a phone back and bank and just saying thank you. What we are doing right now is we have board members. Um, um, Because of this, we did several campaigns to raise money. So we got probably 500 new donors, not major donors, but they're new donors. So we have board members um, who are retired. They're sitting home writing thank you notes to these donors. And so that's their way of you know, playing a major role in us building this culture. They feel like every time I see one of the board members, she's excited about, I did 15 thank you letters today. And I'm like, great. Um, I have no idea who the donors are. They may be $25 donors, but she feels good about the process because we have a culture and we understand it's a team sport. And so I, th- I think um, um, I'm I'm writing thank you notes to our major donors as we speak, and so I'm sitting at home. I'm writing, you know, between takes. I'm between my calls. I'm writing thank you notes to our major donors. Um, but I do that three or four times a year, and trying to maintain that relationship. So, and 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 then I have a I have a you know my development the lead the head of my development department, tells me what to do, and I do it, and then. Um, we, and then we also encourage the board members to kind of get involved in that process. So it's building a culture. I'm saying it's a team sport. Everybody in my organization is a fundraiser. No matter what position you are, no matter what you do, everybody's a fundraiser. And we find ways to build that culture. And that also includes board members.
1: So the way you also emphasize that it's relationship driven and not uh, a transaction is that it's not sales. I thought right. It was a, a, an interesting idea because. Uh, folks looking at it as a transactional situation is sales, and 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 we mentioned this uh, last week in marketing and fundraising raising, where uh, a significant proportion of one-time donors come through the annual event, and that's actually a transactional relationship because they've paid money to have an experience, and they're yeah. not necessarily connected. To the mission they're not necessarily investing in the organization they're really investing in their colleague who's a board member whose table mm-hmm. they're joining or, or, or what what have you uh, Julie, I wanted to come to you and, and just ask if you're seeing uh, over over time a, a shift in understanding amongst people coming on to boards about the, uh, this relationship idea and their role in fundraising, or is that still brand new, every time someone is, is is introduced to, say, this the nonprofit sector as a, and a board opportunity, it, it's that learning curve of what it actually means. is it, Are we still there, or are we getting getting further along?
2: I think we're still really in the learning curve space, um, you know, and there's some, you know, if you grew up in a family that, you know, if you had a parent or, you know, a relative who served on a board, maybe you understand a little bit more, but for many, like, why do I have to pay money to serve on a board? Like, I I hear that uh, a lot. So I I still think there's definitely a learning curve. Um, Going back on just, you know, how do we make sure that board members are comfortable and educated? Um, One of the things that that we did at BBU, and you can't see it, but I can send you the link later. We put together this one page summary for our board of all the things that we are doing. And so some of these are direct service things. Some of them are, you know, behind the scenes, you know, applying for a PPP or increased communication. But when you put it on one one page, and then we've got a column at the bottom for fundraising, which historically we've not been great at, but we put it on one page and you see the breadth and depth of work that the organization is doing, um, and you walk through that with the board, it really helps them internalize and capture Oh, my gosh! This is really powerful. Again, whether the work you're doing ties directly like like Gregory's to the crisis or if it's you know something different.
1: yeah, I, I appreciate that that and that link would be great. we can We can circulate that. Yep. So I just want to uh, clarify. we've got some ideal uh, best practices and ways of of cultivating the the culture and the idea of a team sport and onboarding board members directly, but I just want to uh, catch from Leslie and Benita the advice you're giving to executive directors that you're working with who right now are saying, yeah, I'd love to do that over the next several months or whatever as as I replenish my board, but what do I do right now in this situation if my board will not fundraise? What sort of advice are you giving, Leslie? You
4: know, I think it's... I just in the situation I'm in right now with a client, um, I sat down with her and her board chair um, together and had a conversation with both of them so that the board chair could, it shouldn't be on the executive director to be the heavy for all this, you know, she shouldn't have to hold all the board accountable on her own. So I brought in the board chair and we had a discussion together and I could sort of see the, the board chair's wheels turning and starting to understand that it was on her to help. Um, really hold the rest of the board accountable and make sure that they understand that that's part of their uh, requirement um, as a board but again back to if that expectation was not set when they joined the board that is sometimes difficult to do so what I often advise is for the board to come together and paint a picture of what the work looks like moving forward and some board members may not see themselves in that picture, and that's okay. There may be other ways that they can contribute to the success of the organization. I also encourage people to think about the whole gamut of fundraising and fund development. There's the fund development piece, the research, the you know qualifying donors, um, there's the stewardship, the thanking, as, as someone mentioned. Um, there's a lot that goes into fundraising that if you're not one that's comfortable making the direct ask, Maybe you're not the best person to do that anyway, but if there's someone on your board who is, put that person, you know, at the front lines to do that, but make sure all the other board members are able to do something to support that work, Um, because there's certainly plenty of work to go around when it comes to fundraising, so I just don't think that there's ever um, an excuse for any board member to say, oh, well, I just, I can't fundraise. Well, okay, then figure out what you can do to help support the mission, or vacate your seat so someone who can fundraise can have it.
1: So you're basically saying uh, the, the advice is create that aha moment or that coming together with the board to say we, we actually have a job to do and let's dole out what the responsibilities are. If you, if you can't be an asker, you can be an advocate or an ambassador uh, to use that, that, that language. Benita, are you saying similar things or anything you'd like to add or specific instances that you'd it's, like to share?
3: Yeah, it's it's very similar. Essentially, I've been asking executive directors to sit with the executive committee, so all of the officers of the board, and just talk about where we are financially, where we need to be, and really think about our future. And then we need to look at our bylaws. We need to look at our board roster and see who's been there, who's termed out. Um, and we do need um, some fresh perspectives on the board. We need special Um, skill sets that may be vacant right now. And this is the time where we need to start um, the process for some board recruitment, open up the nominations process, and gracefully ask folks who are really inactive, um, you know, under COVID-19 we're sort of shuffling our our deck a bit. And I just wanted to check in with you. Are you still interested in serving on this board? And the folks that are inactive and unaffected may take that easy out.
1: Yeah, okay. So giving people uh, an opportunity to exit somewhat gracefully under, under the current circumstances. I, I want to shift just a, a, a bit now, uh, still obviously talking about the board, but moving to uh, where we spent some time uh, when we convened last month in April around contingency planning, business continuity planning this is obviously another uh, situation in which we're bringing the board together for some discussions. Uh, and Gregory being, uh, you know, in the field, I wanted to ask you first how your contingency and, and business continuity plans are going. Now, I know you, you also shared with us a, an extensive strategic planning framework, yeah. uh, which I think was the envy of many who heard about it, <laughs> but, <laughs> but still, uh, what is your contingency plan? How are those going? And, and, uh, you know what's that experience been just in the last few weeks well
5: you know it's actually been um, pretty good I, I, I have not shifted from that plan even though we are dealing with a, a crisis and I think that's and, why they
1: were the, the I think that's where the envy comes from it <laughs> yeah. so solid you could rely on it
5: yeah but but I think that's that's the point right is, is having um, a plan where it doesn't matter what happens um, that you're still on task and I think for us is it's it's, it's it's keeping everybody on task, um, um, not just in the crisis, but also on the big picture. So every week we're doing, a, we call it a COVID-19 mastermind. Every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. And all my senior leaders are on, the, on, and there's an agenda. We're talking about what's happening in our area around COVID-19. We talk about what's going on with programs around it. Um, and we're doing, a, and we're showing a new logo and a new mission statement that's, that I'm, I'm, you know, going to be presented to the board today at 4.30. And so it's, it's keeping them focused on the big picture um, while also handling um, the day-to-day um, um, uh, crisis or things that you have to deal with, you know, whether it's the plumbing, the pl- we, we, we've had a plumbing problem over the last two weeks. So we got to deal with the plumbing problem, but we also got to deal with moving the business um, forward because um, co- we're preparing for post-COVID-19. Because we think post COVID nineteen is going to be worse than what we're dealing with now in the middle of a crisis. So, so I, I think it's, it's getting people um, on board and excited about, you know, um, that you that you got it, that everybody's on the same page, and that we, we are over, we're we're over communicating, and and then we're communicating with the board about this is what we're doing, this this is our back to work plan. We're working. We have a a whole plan on our back to work plan. We're going to do it in phases. Phase one, phase two, phase three, and so it, it, it's, it's just it's, it's having. I always believe having the right people around you matters, um, but it's it's being able just to overly communicate. So we meet every Thursday, um, and then I got another group who meets every every Tuesday morning, and so we're overly communicating on how we move moving forward, making sure the staff is okay. Um, check. I even check. We the board is also part of my plan. I want to make sure they're okay and they're up to date on what was going on too. So. Um, not so much as the contingency, but moving forward and shift and and be nimble as we need to. But the ultimate goal will never change. Um, although we may, we may have to have have shifted, shifted some things and did some things differently.
1: So it sounds it's not just contingency planning, but contingency operations. Yeah, and and that uh, again something we mentioned last time is is a way of managing the onslaught of information is a regular scheduled cadence you met you've got those two weekly meetings going i think mm-hmm. we mentioned last time a, a weekly update for for the board so they didn't have to uh, expect to flirt emails through the week uh leslie do you want to share uh, how how your board is coping with a uh, contingency planning and business continuity and then i'll come to you benita
4: sure yeah it's um it's been a little bit difficult and i think the organization where um where I serve is a little bit unique in that we are an event-based nonprofit. So without being able to execute on our one thing that we do every year, it's been a little bit difficult. Um, but our staff has been um, thinking outside the box, really thinking of, okay, if we can't do X thing, what can we do to replace that and so carry out our mission? Because that's the key is we should still be able to receive funding for our mission. even if we can't execute on the event, back to your comment about transactional versus supporting the mission, which is something that I've had to really talk to some of the other board members about that. We still have a mission to support. People still want this event to come back next year. So we still have to retain our staff and we still have to have something for them to work on this year. So they focused a lot of time on um, things that don't have that they don't have time for when, Um, Things get busy with planning of the event. So, um, working on a donor database, I can't remember. I think it was Anita mentioned that earlier. So, they're taking the time to do that now and really working on that fund development. All the things that sometimes get pushed off to the wayside when we get busy in the day to day operations of the organization. Um, So, at a board level, I think we've had some board members who feel like it's not appropriate to ask for money right now. Um, So, that's something that we are struggling with a little bit with some board members is saying, well, yeah, we still have to ask for money unless you want to have to rehire a whole new staff a year from now and, and have our, our event really go away. Um, so yeah, it's just been a challenge, but I think our staff is doing a great job with, with figuring out how to be innovative and how to think of, of new ways of doing things when maybe we're not even sure in 2021 what it's going to look like for us. So.
1: And, and are yeah. you doing contingency planning for, the post COVID-19, which, and are you expecting that to be worse as Gregory said?
4: Yeah, we are. We're really thinking of, you know, like everyone, how we can do things virtually, how we can do, you know, just for the event that we had last year, we had 11,000 people. (laughs) So obviously we can't do that right now. And, you know, we hope we can do that again in 2021, but if we can't, um, we're thinking of ways that we can disseminate our programming throughout the community and, virtual ways or smaller groups, um, right now, thinking of that even for 2021.
1: Okay. And Benita, where, where, are, where are the organizations you're working with in terms of contingency planning? How are those plannings, uh, how is that planning exercise working out and, and what are the expectations post COVID-19? Sure. I, I know there's a lot there, so.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I'll break it into a couple of points. So the crisis and business continuity plans that many of my clients, um, are working through now have been helpful. But I want to talk about the human side for a bit. Those plans were specifically very helpful to stabilize internally, to deal with people's fears, their anxieties, to calm them, and to increase the connection amongst one another. So that's been really successful. Um, but it's also been helpful in terms of negotiating with the foundations in terms of you know what can actually be done. Um, But honestly, many of uh, the nonprofits I work with are really being forced to edit their programming, um, the specific services that they provide um, so that they can still remain viable at this point. And some of the executive directors are starting to look at staffing models and phases in terms of whether cuts need to be made and determining what's absolutely essential to maintain sort of this baseline not only operations but programming as well Um, but specifically all of them are doing um, which will um, remain um, the way forward post COVID-19 is they're totally ramping up their online presence Um, not only Mm -hmm. on their website making it more attractive and having alerts and making it more visually stimulating but also increasing um, their social media presence across a variety of platforms. And so that means many of them are now looking for a specific communication social media person to help them take it to the next level.
1: Right. And, and can you speak just briefly um, about the expectations uh, for, for next year and, and, and where, where people's, what, what people are expecting they're gonna to have to be coping with next year or later this year?
3: So many of my clients are grassroots and so they are literally on the ground. They touch and see people on a daily basis prior to, to COVID-19. And so people come to them because they trust them, right? And they've always helped them in the past. And so it's a little overwhelming. And so what they're doing is is making sure that they stay focused on the work that they do, but helping in, in some small ways. And things are going to have to shift because they can't financially continue to do even those extra small things um, going forward with the current staff that they have. And so they're shifting, as they've already done now everything that's, they plan to have everything go virtual um, in the coming, you know, I'd say first quarter of 2021. Um, Because they're looking at when, because we're here in Atlanta, and we connect with the CDC often, we're looking at when the vaccine will be available. And it's not going to be available until at least January. And so we know that we're going to be operating like this virtually for the rest of the year. And we need to understand that it's probably going to impede several months into, if not six months into the new year.
1: And are you seeing, uh, how, how would you describe, I should say, the the range or the spectrum of, of, of preparation? You have some organizations that are quite uh, positive about the way they'll be able to respond, and then others absolutely petrified with a lot in between. Uh, describe that sort of Spectrum or or range. So the
3: organizations that have been doing this work for sort of 10 or more years are pivoting quite well. The ones that have been around for a couple years, you know, it's likely that they may, they may not survive the next six to nine months.
1: And is that the organizations or the people leading them in for the organizations? Yeah. The organization. And Julie, would you uh, agree uh, with that assessment in terms of the range of organizations that you've you've seen in the uh, Greater Cleveland through the BVU, that sort of rate, that spectrum?
2: Yeah, I think it's all across the board. Um, I think the organizations, as um, Benita said, you know, that are able to pivot, um, they're doing really great things. And sort of, um, I listened to a webinar last week where somebody said it kind of this crisis kind of pushed us off the, off the ledge. There were some things that we'd been talking about doing differently, talking about moving to telehealth or, you know, virtual services and webinars um, and just hadn't, you know, hadn't pulled the needle. Um, and so this forced that and they've had some really positive outcomes. And so there's that kind of acceleration and innovation and creativity for those organizations who, who feel like they have, a bit more solid footing that allows them to do that. Uh, but the newer organizations, it's going to be really hard. Um, you know, even if you got a PPP, as, as someone said last week, that's a two month solution to a 12 plus 24 plus mm-hmm. month problem.
1: Yeah. So it's interesting. Gregory. So, Gregor, I want to come to you now because we, we've we had uh, in, in this panel and others, uh, Benita mentioned the editing of programs. Uh, I think in our, in our talent and staff development, panel, someone referred to the the level of change as a brutal edit to some of the things that we're able to do. Uh, And my question, uh, again, appealing to your very robust planning framework, Gregory, is the extent to which mission and vision has helped. Because we've heard a lot of people say being consistent with making these choices, consistent with the mission, consistent with the mission. But in my experience, mission statements are so broad and so aspirational and so high level that I wonder how truly valuable they have been to executive directors and boards in making some of those tough decisions because both, both, op- both options are within the mission. So the mission itself isn't going to tell you that you need something else to rely on. Can you speak to your experience in making those changes that you talked about, say, again, shifting to food, for example?
5: Um, This is actually a a great question. I I know for a lot of organizations, and I serve on three other boards too, and so I kind of see it from both sides. Um, But, you know, the way I try to lead is I want to make sure that the mission is live and well. And so in every meeting, everything that we do, everything is kind of focused, not just because it's talk, but we really kind of dive into um, um our mission statement, our business statement. And, and actually right now we're revamping our our, our our mission statement as we you know launch into this big strategic plan and rebranding. Um but but you know the essence of the questions is about you know you, you, you got one and one A. They both fit the mission. And I think for us we have to go to need. What was the most critical need right now? And food insecurity food and was because we serve so many senior citizens. And so food insecurity, when we did our own kind of analysis and brainstorming, food insecurity was the most critical need right now. It was tangible. Um, we had more people. Um, people who were volunteering six months ago were now in line to get a box of food. And so we just found that food became the most critical aspect of what we're doing. Um, it doesn't mean that we totally stopped our other services. We learned to do it differently. So we, we were doing financial empowerment um, classes and workshops. Instead of doing it in, the, in our boardroom, we're now doing it through Zoom. So we, we, in terms of being pushed to be innovative, we get more people on the Zoom than we had people showing up for uh, in live class. And I think we said to ourselves, I think we onto something. And so I think as we look back and going back, we're gonna kind of do a hybrid. But um, for us, it came making that decision it both fit the mission, but I think it came down to what was the most critical need, the most immediate need right now without losing focus on the other big picture? What's the most immediate need right now? And that's how we made that decision.
1: And that, that's interesting because it, it accords with what uh, the other expert panel, Programs and Services, said about focusing on responsiveness. Uh, Benita, how are those organizations uh, who um, – or, or rather, you, you you mentioned that length of time was a factor in an organization's ability to pivot and indeed possibly survive. Is it that connectedness to the, the the community and the responsiveness to need is that one factor as well?
3: Um. Yes and no. So the organizations that have pivoted quite well have long-standing. Um, relationships with foundations who trust them and trust them to do the work. Um, they also have credibility in the community. Um, so community members trust them and rely on them. But really, they have had the technology in place. And specifically, there are a couple of clients that have do, do massive get out to vote work. So they have like a hundred seat phone banking center already on site. With laptops, cell phones, that kind of stuff, those clients pivoted almost within a couple of days and were fine, mm-hmm. right? The clients that took two months to get laptops and cell phones and internet connectivity to their ten-member staff members in, at home are struggling. Um, but I think, in terms of the mission, the mission and the vision really are sort of the guiding light, you know, in the storm, and it really refocuses folks back to the task at hand and it really keeps people aligned now mission drift is real i I've, I've seen it happen i've seen some nonprofits crash and burn because they they shifted too much but what's really difficult under covid-19 is that if you've been in this community doing this work you're trusted people naturally come to you there's so much unmet need you feel compelled to help and so it almost feels inhumane, but I'm, I'm sort of advising my clients to really stay focused and just do some referrals, right? Um, because you can't, you can't do it all. You have to stay focused on what you're federally designated to do.
1: Yeah, but also I suppose on uh, if you take on too much, you just dilute the impact you're after in, in any case. And, and uh, Leslie, are you finding that uh, organizations that are pivoting well are relying on uh, mission and vision, or have they got a, a narrower, clearer sense of what they're about that allows them to make those decisions and edits, if you will, to their programming?
4: Yeah. Um, one of my clients, actually, what they do is provide emergency funding for families who have a child experiencing cancer. So they are, that's their space. They're, they're, they pay rent, they pay bills, they, they buy all the things that you know families need when they have a child that's experiencing cancer. So they have actually slid very easily into this other, you know, they're using more funds and have, have a greater need for funds than they've had in the past. But thankfully they had a very successful year last year. So they're padded a little bit to help with that um one of my other clients they are um the way they make their money is um organizing walks across the country <laughs> so they've had to be a little more innovative and they're doing more um virtual walks and utilizing i can't remember who said more social media and just really trying to think outside the box um for how they can still execute on their mission and still spread the word of what they do around the country without being able to be physically present um and I, in that executive director in particular, said, you know, it's, it's a lot less work for us if we're, on, we're not on the ground having to execute these walks across the country. So, you know, she said on some level, some of this may stick for them because they weren't getting great turnout at the walks, but they're getting a lot better turnout for some of the virtual events that they're holding. So she said that is something that they may even continue beyond. A, a different, um,
1: more cost-effective footprint.
4: Absolutely. But it's still getting their mission out there. It's just not having to do all of the, the heavy lifting and um, leg work to get it done. So, yeah, I think that it's just innovation is the key right now where, where you, where you can think outside the box. And, but again, I, I totally agree with um, Benita and Benita in avoiding mission drift because <laughs> that's, that's a real thing too.
1: Right. We have about 11 minutes left. I've got another question to put to the panel and then we will open up for questions to listeners, if you want to start putting questions in the chat that we can pick up in a moment. And Julie, I'm going to come to you first. Uh, Again, keeping this idea of mission and vision, uh, Benito already said it, some organizations may not survive. So the elephant in the room, I think, particularly if we're expecting this to be, uh, the the post-COVID situation to be yet even worse, and PPP support has dried up. How are organizations looking, or how sh- how would you advise boards to be thinking about either program closure or merger, or indeed the whole organization closing or merging, and, play- and obviously the-, the mission and vision plays into that decision-making? Can you start to unpack some of that thinking for us?
2: Yeah, so... The board needs to be engaged right away in these conversations, even when things are a-okay perfect, and you want to have that really honest conversation about what is the core that you want to protect? You know, who are you as an organization that no, the rest of it can go away, but this is who we are? Um, And then start to have those conversations, you know, looking at your financial forecasts and your scenario planning and really understanding, you know, how... Um, how your programming aligns and, you know, is is this something that we can make work long-term? You want to think about, you know, are there back office, you know, consolidations that might be able to, you know, save you some dollars, whether you're, you know, co-locating or, you know, shared buying power or a functional, you know, not everybody needs their own finance person. Could we, you know, work together and, and um, save some funds that way? And then, as a board, start thinking about who are potential partners out there. Um, and that doesn't necessarily, you don't have to leap to merger right away, but who could help us or who could we help deliver what our community needs um, in, a, in a more effective way? And so you have those conversations and you start, you know, board to board talking about what, um, what the future might look like. And it, it's is, is it it's realistic? Tough, real conversations. <laughs>
1: is it realistic to do contingency planning or, or crisis planning, business continuity without the prospect of uh, a merger, acquisition, or closure? Can you, can you actually realistically, legitimately have those conversations now with those without those being on the table?
2: I don't necessarily think you should. Uh, I think you should always be thinking about, even when times are fantastic, you want to be thinking about who, you know, who could we partner with that we could deliver our programs more effectively? We could reach a broader audience. I mean, there are a lot of different reasons why you might um, consider a, a partnership of, of some level. And it could be, do we collaborate on one thing and then go from there? Because um, there's a whole spectrum of, of what that might look like. But, you know, you, want, you don't want to wait until um, we have less than 30 days cash in the bank till we start having those conversations. You want to have them start having them now. Again, it may not lead to anything. And then it's been a really useful exercise. Um, But you know, the position that you're in as an organization, you know, your strengths, you know um, you know, where you can, you know, really push on a program um, and and where you might need to, you know, think about shutting something down or can somebody else do it, but you got to do that analysis. And it's kind of, you know, an internal slot of, you know, cost-benefit analysis and, you know, who needs us and how is it working and do we have the funds and do we have funders who can help help us get through?
1: So, all the right questions, uh, strategic questions. Leslie, uh, you mentioned earlier that you've had to uh, rec- recommend, and I think I put these words in your mouth because it wasn't exactly how you said it, but, <laughs> but sort of create that uh, aha moment for the board and that's when we were talking about fundraising, mm-hmm. uh, are you following that advice very quickly with what, what Julie was just saying, which is, oh, and by the way, your next aha moment is, you know, are we going to be here or in what shape or form? Is that, is that, is that conversation happening already?
4: Yeah. Actually, one of my clients right now, um, they had a meeting last week with an, um, a, another uh, organization in the community who does similar work, um, who they've collaborated with in the past, And I haven't heard the outcome of that conversation yet, but I know that they were going down that road to think about, you know, could they work together? Um, The advice that I gave was to be very sure that that was um, a good move for them to make. I think that as people who work in the nonprofit space, we want to save everybody. (laughs) Um, But sometimes you have to put on your business hat and think, well, that's not really a smart business decision for us. It could ultimately result in all of us going away. Um, So I think that, you know, my advice to her was to really, really evaluate the opportunity very thoroughly um, financially and um, to make sure it was a sustainable solution and not just a band-aid that was actually going to be more beneficial for the other organization than for her organization. So I think that's a lesson where, you know, overall, I I generally think for-profit businesses can take a lesson from nonprofits and how smart we are and um, how clever and innovative we are and, and use less resources and, and do great things. But I think in this instance, it's good to take a lesson from for-profits in making smart business decisions and making sure um, that you're really looking out for the future of your organization and your people.
1: Yeah, striking that balance. Benita, what have you seen uh, in terms of where people's heads are in approaching this question What are you advising them? What do you think the stages of this conversation look like?
3: Sure. So I want to just first start by saying, if never before, now is absolutely the time for the boards to exercise financial oversight. Um, Many of my clients have naturally been partnering with other smaller nonprofits or other community-based organizations in the course of their work since their existence. Um, Whether they're open to mergers or not, um, I'm not terribly sure, but they work in a collaborative way because that's the way they do business. But what, what nonprofit boards need now in this moment is an absolutely strong treasurer. Right. Someone who is able to sit with the executive director and do some forecasting, monitor that cash flow on a monthly basis um, and really be able to, to dialogue with them and help give them a framework for moving forward. So one of the things that I have been working with a lot of executive directors on is sort of forecasting, looking at how much they have in reserves, looking at how much they have in the bank, Calculating out how much they spend each month on salary versus administration versus payroll taxes, whatever, and really plotting out how far can you get with what you have now and what do you have coming in. Okay, so now let's think about it. If you have 25 staff members, um, are all 25 absolutely essential to maintain your operations and your programming? If we were forced to cut five, where would we cut? Second tier, if we were forced to cut another five, where would we cut? And so I've been working with executive directors to create sort of five tiers, if necessary. Um, And so that we can start plotting and planning out, you know, sort of the viability for the long term of the organization. And then it's really important that the entire board, and definitely officers, and the board president who's going to be one of the chief spokespersons of the organizations absolutely remain tied at the hip with the executive director. They absolutely have to be in one voice because if these shifts, these changes, whether it's, um, you know, editing staff, whether it's um, uh, editing programming, whether it's moving toward dissolution, you have to be in one voice because you're going to get hit by questions internally, externally, the press, your funders, you have to have one voice. So getting that relationship tight and making sure you have um, pre-established messaging so that everyone says the same thing.
1: Yeah, that, that relationship uh, central to the success of, of a nonprofit between the, the board chair, board president, and the executive director. And I know you, Gregory, last time you were able to share, again, more envy from the group about the quality of this relationship you had. Where uh, just just to tie this one up before we get to the the one question I want to bring in from the uh, from the listeners is where, if at all, are you looking at uh, merger or closure of any programs uh, mm-hmm. going forward as part of your contingency planning?
5: Um. Uh- you know, it's, it's a great question. I, you know, probably if you would ask me that same question five years ago, I would not be in favor of mergers and, and, you know, acquisitions. And, you know, we all want to be the king of our domain. That's how nonprofit leaders operate. Um, but, but today, I am 100% um, um, think it's a right business strategy. And because I really believe that it can increase social impact um, when, the right, when the alignment is right and the culture is right, um, that it can really increase social impact. Um, it creates a, um, a necessary disruption that you are being proactive and really thinking about the, the impact that you really want to have in a particular community. So we're not reacting to a crisis, but you're being proactive. Um, it reduces liability um, um, from a financial perspective, but also funders, you know, I think like that because versus giving the two organizations, they can give to this one that's having a greater impact. In many ways, you can probably get more because it's a business strategy long, and you have a long-term sustainability plan. Um, um, their investment could increase because of, because of that merger. Um, you create social innovation. Um, and again, you know, you're able to be a lot more nimble to when things do happen. Um, now you have this additional um, um, asset, so, you know, even though it's a program, but if you think about it from a business perspective, it's an asset that you're now able to offer, you know, the the community. And like I said, I think it reduces risk, um, fiscal risk, financial risk, um, but increases the impact that you want to have. So I, I I would say that um, if every now and then boards are not kind of having that conversation, um, I think they're they're missing out. And and doing doing any type of acquisition or merger, it's a process and it's a lot of due diligence. It's a legal process. It's a financial process. It's bringing two boards together. Who's going to be the CEO? Who's going to be? The, I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's, a, it's 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 a it's a big process. It's messy, um, and partly because I just went through it, and so um, it's still kind of fresh. Um, that that what you thought they were bringing to the table when that day you close, you realize that what was true four months ago, or three months ago, is not true today. And and you got to create a now. You, now you need a contingency plan because you thought you thought you thought, and then boom! Wait a minute, that bank account no longer even exists. This <laughs> is this, right.
1: is, this so. is where we're going to start next time. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm certain of it. Uh, I want to draw though the the key point you think you're making is is being proactive and and led through strategy as opposed to being reactive. Yes, uh, which I think is a which is a really important point. Uh, I'm afraid we've run out of time. I know we did have a question about uh, resources for board leadership and success planning. Uh, If we have any ready available resources, we'll circulate those, but we can pick up that question next time. And, and, uh, and I was serious Gregory about the experience that uh, if you're, if it's not too raw to, to share with that, but I'd like to uh, thank the panel. Thank the uh, people for uh, the registrants for joining us today, and we will see you next time on Nonprofit Problem Solver. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Nonprofit Problem Solver podcast. Special thanks to this week's experts, Julie Clark, Leslie Spethman, Gregory Scott, and Benita Stanley. This episode was produced by Glenn Munoz at Pod Pro Audio.
0: You can join future conversations live by visiting NonprofitProblemSolver.com. Connect with Kev on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. You're also invited to join a private Facebook group, Social Impact Practitioner, where every day we go deep into the practical and tactical work to accelerate your impact. Because good causes deserve better results.